The reason why I'm going to allow you to sit this morning is because I'm actually going to read uh, a pretty extended portion of Scripture from Ezekiel this morning. And frankly, I just want to be kind to your knees, okay? Um, kind to your knees. So um, we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 18 and uh, Ezekiel 22. We're going to try to look at both those chapters, at least from a high level this morning, and I'll explain why here in just a few moments. But let us hear the word of the Lord together. There you can find this on our screens. Um, I hope you'll have your Bibles open. I, I really, this should go without saying every Sunday, but I'm just going to ask you specifically this morning, pay attention to what we're reading this morning, okay? And the reason why is because I'm going to build a lot off of this um, in a very short summary of these two texts, these two chapters, to use as a way to talk about a really important topic of, of biblical justice this morning, okay? And you'll find out why here in just a moment. But we're going to look at Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, and, and I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 22 as well. So about 70-some verses. So bear with me for a few minutes if that's okay with you. In fact, I'll go ahead and tell the recording team, for those who listen online, uh, you don't have to keep this in the recording because this is just going to add stuff, but maybe it is. I don't know. Here we go. Ezekiel 18. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, this is the declaration, Lord, you will no longer use this proverb in Israel. Look, every life belongs to me. The life of the fathers is like the life of the son. Both belong to me. The people who, a people who sins is the one who, I'm sorry, the person who sins is the one who will die. Suppose a man is righteous and does what is right and just. He does eat at the mountain. Of, he does not eat at the mountain shrines or look at the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual purity. He doesn't oppress anyone, but returns his collateral to the debtor. He does not commit robbery. He gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He doesn't lend at interest or for profit, but keeps his hand from injustice and carries out true justice between men. He, carries my, he follows my statutes and keeps my ordinances, acting faithfully. Such a person is righteous, and he will certainly live. This is the declaration of the Lord. But suppose the man has a violent son who sheds blood and does any of, the, and does any of the things, these things, though the father has done none of them. Indeed, when the son eats at the mountain shrines and defi- I'm sorry, when, when the son eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, and when he oppresses the poor and needy and commits robbery and does not return collateral, when he looks at the idols and commits detestable acts and when lin- and lends at interest or for profit, will he live? He will not live. Since he has committed all these detestable acts, he will certainly die. His death will be on his be his own fault. Now suppose he has a son who sees all the sins of his father has, his father has committed, and though he sees them, he does not do like, likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or, or look at the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He doesn't oppress anyone, hold collateral, or commit robbery. He gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He, gives his, he keeps his hands from harming the poor, not taking interest or profit or on a loan. He practices my ordinances and follows my statutes. Such a person will not die for his father's iniquity. He will certainly live. As for his father, he will die for his own iniquity because he practiced fraud, robbed his brother, and did among his people what was not good. But you may ask, why doesn't the son suffer punishment for the father's iniquity? Since the son has done what is just and right, carefully observing all the statutes, he will certainly live. The person who sins is the one who will die. 
The son won't suffer punishment for his father's iniquity, and the father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. But if the wicked person turns from all the sins he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he will certainly live. He will not die. None of the transgressions he has committed will be held against him. He will live because the righteousness he has practiced. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is a declaration of the God. Instead, I don't take pleasure when he turns. Don't I take pleasure when he, he turns from his ways and lives? But when a righteous person turns from his righteousness and acts unjustly, committing the same detestable acts that the wicked do, but he will, will he live? None of the righteous acts he did will be remembered. He will die because of the treachery he has engaged in and the sin he has committed. But you say the, Lord, the Lord's way is, isn't, isn't, unf- isn't fair. Now listen, house of Israel, is it my way that is unfair? Instead, isn't it your ways that are unfair? When a righteous person turns from his, un- his righteousness and acts justly, unjustly, he will die for this. He will die because of the injustice he has committed. But if a wicked person turns from the wickedness and he has committed, he has committed and does what is just and right, he will, pre- he will preserve his life. He will certainly live because he, because he thought it over and turned from all the transgressions he had committed. He will not die. But the house of Israel says, the Lord's way isn't fair. Is it my ways that are unfair, house of Israel? Instead, isn't it your ways that are unfair? Therefore, house of Israel, I will judge each one of you according to his ways. This is the declaration of the Lord. Repent and turn from all your rebellious acts so that they will not become a sinful stumbling block to you. Throw off all of your transgressions you, um, you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Repent and live. Now to chapter 22. The word of the Lord came to me. As for you, son of man, will you pass judgment? Will you pass judgment against the city of blood? Then explain all of her detestable acts to her. You are to say, this is what the Lord God says. A city that sheds blood within her walls so that her time of judgment has come and who makes idols for herself so that she is defiled. You are guilty of the blood you have shed. You are defiled from the idols you have made. You have brought your judgment days near and have come to your years of punishment. Therefore, I have made you a disgrace to the nations and a mockery to the lands. Now pay real close attention to the difference between the individual aspects of 18 to the corporate communication. God is talking to a city, a people. Those who are near and those who are far away from you will mock you, you infamous um, you, you infamous one, uh, one full of turmoil. Look, every prince of Israel within you, I mean within the city, within the community, has used his strength to shed blood. Father and mothers are treated with contempt and the resident alien is exploited within you. The fatherless and the widow are oppressed in you. Emphasis added. You despise my holy things and profane my Sabbath. There are men within you who slander in order to shed blood. People who live in you eat at the mountain shrines. They commit depraved acts within you. Men within you have sexual intercourse with their father's wives and violate women during their menstrual purity. 
One man within you commits a detestable act with his father's wife. Another defiles his daughter-in-law with depravity. Yet another violates his sister with his, sister of, of his, his father's daughter. People who live in you accept bribes in order to shed blood. You take interest and profit on a loan and brutally extort your neighbors. You have forgotten me. This is a declaration of the Lord. Now look, I clap my hands together against the the dishonest profit you have made, against the blood shed among you. Will your courage endure or your hands be strong in the days when I deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and I will act. I will disperse you among the nations and scatter you among the countries. I will purge your uncleanness. You will be profaned in the sight of the nations. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. The house of Israel has become merely dross to me. All of them are copper, tin, iron, and lead inside a furnace. They are just dross from silver. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, because all of you have become dross, I am about to gather you into Jerusalem, just as one gathers silver, copper, iron, and lead and lead and tin into the furnace to blow fire and on them and melt them. So I will gather you in, the, in my anger and wrath and put you inside and melt you. Yes, I will gather you together, blow, you on, blow on you with the fire of my fury, and you will be melted within the city. As silver is melted inside a furnace, so you will be melted inside the city. Then you will know that I and the Lord have poured out my wrath on you. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to her, you are, uh, you are a land that has not been cleansed, that has not, been received, that has not received rain in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets within her. It's like a roaring lion tearing its prey. They devour people, seize wealth and valuables, and multiply the widows within her. Her priests, the prophets and priests, do violence to instruction and profane my holy things. They make no distinction between the holy and the common. They do not explain the difference between the clean and the unclean. They close their eyes to my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Her officials within her are like wolves tearing out prey, shedding blood and destroying lives in order to make profit dishonestly. Her prophets plaster for them within them whitewashed by seeing false visions and lying divinations. We talked about that last week. This is what the Lord God says when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and unlawfully exploited the resident alien. I searched for a man among them who would repair the wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so that I might not destroy it, but I found no one. I have poured out my indignation on them and consumed them with fire of my fury. I have brought, my con- I brought their conduct down on their heads. This is the declaration of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Heavy passage. Direct passage of God to his people. He takes his people's sins seriously, both individually and collectively. I think that's very clear by reading these two passages. And I think as we begin to look at this passage, we want to talk about an important topic this morning. Justice. Does justice matter to God? The answer is yes. 
God is a God of justice. We'll talk about that more here in a moment. For several editions back in the early 1900s, over a span of several weeks, the Times of London batted around this question, even calling out several prominent authors and thinkers and theologians in the UK for a response to it. Here's the question. What is wrong with our world today? Seems like a question we bet around here, do we not? It's a question for all ages. What is wrong with the world today? Well, the well-known author and Catholic thinker G.K. Chesterton said with a one-sentence essay, and maybe you're familiar with it, I am. Thank you, G.K. Chesterton. That's all he wrote in his op-ed in response to this question. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Now his witty reply was no doubt unnerving, maybe and certainly unexpected, but we live in a world that I think where, where, where it's common that few people are willing to look honestly at themselves but rather look at other people or other groups as the true source for the problems in the world that we face. It's a blame-shifting game that we have constantly. So watching a news channel and you see the blame-shifting, right? It's this party or that party. It's this group or that group. And that's the world we live in. And so the instinct in our culture, the culture today, is the same instinct that God is indicting his people for. And we read it here in, in chapter 18. It is this tendency to blame shift, the tendency to look at something else for the root of our problems rather than looking at ourselves. And Ezekiel 18 points out a proverb that enrages God. I'll read it to you again. Here's the common proverb that was in the exile's lips. The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words... The exiles were in their situation, supposedly, not because of their own actions, but because they were victims of their fathers. They were victims of the collective actions of the former generations. And you and I know that this notion is alive and well in our world today, is it not? Many are even trying to rewrite history to blame past generations and say we are, we, we are guilty for past generations Sins. And again, as we noted in 18, you know that God does not judge according to that same pattern. Yet, there is this tension between God does judge cities and does judge communities. So there is a way in which God collects both an individual, but yet a collective group of people too. And we'll, again, we'll try to understand the, the, the tension there more as we go along. Chesterton's quip is a very relevant one for us today, is it not? And I think we need to take it to heart in a fresh way. Consider, for example, Psalm 10, verse 7, which reads, His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue his are mischief and iniquity. Look, the subject of this verse is a wicked man. This man hates God. He blasphemes him even. He's boastful and impious. He's cruel to the poor. He's greedy. He's arrogant. He's deceitful. He's coarse. He's murderous. The psalmist calls God to see and act and judge this evil person and do it now. If you were to read the whole thing, I don't have time to read the whole thing. 
But what is more striking for a true student of Scripture is when you read all of the Scriptures and understand this text, you understand that what's more disturbing of a truth that's buried in Scripture than even this one verse is the fact that we are all this man. We are all born this man. We are born with a disposition of hating God, blaspheming Him, being boastful and pious, greedy, whatever, all the things we describe. We are all this man. This is one of the great denials of the human experiment is that we will always point, saying it's someone else's problem. We want to play the victim mentality. Someone else, I'm the product of my father's or my mother's sins or the past generation's sins. So therefore, it's not my fault for where I am today. And so then when we get into this larger topic of justice and injustice, um, you and I know that there's a whole lot of debate around that especially the last four or five years, especially since just pre-COVID. For some, even mentioning the word justice or mentioning words like racism or race is tantamount to being relegated to the halls of being a social justice warrior. So don't even talk about it. You're always putting suspicion if you even use these words these days. And so in social justice debates, inevitably there is much finger-pointing and little personal humility to own our own parts, our own sin, our own problems of the world. We just want someone else to take the fall. We want someone else to be punished for why we're in the mess we're in. But we never, we never, we never want to punish ourselves. We never want to look at ourselves. This is what the point of G. Ked Chesterton's point is in answering the question, I'm the problem. And you and I know this as good Christians. We know that in a garden, we are the problem. We inherited our father, our great-grandfather's sin in Adam. Now, in spite, though, of this contentious fodder over social justice issues, there is something good about it if we will be mindful of it. Bear with me. Because behind all the social justice talk of our day... And this is, this is introduction trying to get us into the text. All behind all this social justice talk supposes something that even those who don't believe in God don't see. It supposes a standard. To even suggest that there needs, there's a justice that needs to be met supposes a standard. It supposes that there's a way to make things right. It supposes that there's an assessment that we can all come to universally and agree upon. Now, as a good Christian, we all know there is that standard. But it only comes when people bend their knee to the God of the universe. Sadly, what much of what passes for justice today is nothing like that. It's not rooted in anything immutable or infinite. Rather, it seems that their standard of justice arises just from the simple collective moral impulse. That's right, right? We look around us and it seems like every week there's a new morality standard and it just changes on the whims of man's lips. Now why am I starting there and why am I going here this morning? Because as we noted last week in these few chapters, 12 through 24, God spends this time judging his own people. He's not judging the nations yet. That will come 
In two weeks, for a couple weeks, we're going to deal with those in the following chapters. But he's dealing with his people, and specifically, we noted last week, there's three things God is going to judge his people for. Last week, we dealt with the issue of false teachers and false teaching, the fact that there is this impulse within us to, to, to hear and receive false teaching and be susceptible to it because... We are so twisted and turned by every chaos and every crisis that happens in the world so that when those things happen, what happens? We would go, oh, we need a new man. We need a new person speaking into this reality instead of simply trusting Scripture, simply trusting God's covenant plans, simply trusting God's promises. And so he's judging his people and their their susceptibility to uh, false teaching because they don't trust God's word. This week, we're going to focus on the fact that God is now dealing with another issue. It's the issue of his people, their lack of attention towards God's standard for righteousness, and therefore their indifference to how righteousness is to be lived out among ourselves and in our world, and how we are to live it out. You might call it an indifference to injustice. Some of you are in here going, okay, where's pastor going? Well, here's where I'm going. This is partly the definition, but here's the main idea. Because God is just, that's our starting point. Justice starts with God. Because God is just, God's people are called to live justly as redeemed image bearers of Christ who seek to establish justice only on the righteous standard of God alone. Try to slow that down so you get the whole point of it. It's right there in your, your little guide if you got that. I'll say it again. Because God is just, God's people are called to live justly as redeemed image bearers of Christ who seek to establish justice only on the righteous standard of God alone. Now, the reason I took the trouble to go ahead and read all of chapter 18 and chapter 22 at the very beginning of the sermon is because what I want to do for the next couple of minutes is just summarize the main ideas that we took from that text, okay? There could be other things we could be said, but I think I'm, I think I'm getting the main points here, right? And there's five brief but broad points that I think will leave us, it will help us study this topic of justice well, and then I want to talk about what justice is and how it's important to God's people, And the goal being this, at the end of the day, you and I will worship the God of justice more rightly, that we will live just and righteously as God's people, and we will deeper rest in the King of justice, Jesus. So here's the observations I just want to simply lift up. They're actually, again, right here in your guide. You You don't have to worry about getting lost. I gave you some text to where I find them from. And this will be for your own time to go back and look on your own, okay? So I'm going to trust that you can study Scripture on your own. I'm just going to lift these straight up and let them kind of sit on their own. Number one, all of life belongs to God alone. We see this in verse 4 of chapter 18. Number two, humanity nor God's people are victims to some other cause for their sin in unjust ways. I lift that from 18, verse 1 through 3. We are not victims to someone else for our sin. Number three, God is concerned for the just and fair treatment of all people, especially at the hands of his own people. And we lift that from Ezekiel 18, 5 through 9, and from 22, 6 through 12. 
Number four, God's people are both individually and communally responsible to live justly. And I think that's simply straightforward, right? You can just read 18, you read 22. It's hard to say that that's not true in Scripture. God takes both of those things seriously for God's people. Particularly the church. We live justly as individuals as we live out here in our individual lives, but we should be known as a just people within this church who live to care and love and care for the orphan and the, and the people who are in need and, and to care for one another. And then last, number five, God judges both persons and peoples, persons individually and societies collectively. God does both. And I see that in 22, verses 23 through 31. Now, I, again, I am going to do all of that and leave that there, trusting that you are good stewards of God's word, and you can go back and study that on your own if you wish to think more about that. On that foundation, though, here's what I want to talk about for the remainder of my time, the balance of our time. One is I want to talk about the God, our God, who is a God of justice, number one. How do we, we need to get to know him. Do we know him? Number two, we want to talk about what does it mean to God's people in this pursuit of justice, what does it look like, and what does God really call his people to, and what does he not call his people to? And then last, we will talk about this remainder of the point is we want to know what does it look like as we are waiting for the true king of justice, or that God's perfect justice is yet to come. You'll see where I give that later on. So let's talk about this first point. God is a God of justice. Long way of getting where we want to go, but I hope it serves you to set us up for this moment, these next few moments. When we think about the God of God justice, we got to know that 133 times in the Bible, the word justice is connected to the nature of God. And we'll give you a few. I have them in my text here. I don't have time to flip through my Bible, so I just wrote them down in here. So hopefully help us here. Psalm 9, 7 through 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He established, he has established his throne of for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with, up, with uprightness. Psalm 37, 5 through 6. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Later in chapter uh, Psalm 37, verse 28, the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalm 89, 14. The righteousness and justice are that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, the psalmist says. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 99, 4 through 5. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord your, our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Now that last one is particularly a messianic psalm. It is talking about King Jesus. Now what do these verses collectively tell us? If we were to summarize all of what we've said here, and again, I could give you numerous more, hundreds more. Here's what we know. God is not only concerned about justice, but God himself is justice. He's not part justice. He's not part love. He's not part grace. Like, God is a whole. He's one. And so to say God is just, it is perfect union of fullness of justice in and of himself. Part of his nature is part of his character. 
God's righteousness is the foundation, therefore, then, of true justice. So in order for God to be just, that means the very nature of who he is, his righteousness that is to be worshipped, God himself is justice, and by, by, by that, his righteousness is the foundation for true justice in our lives and in this life. If we're going to talk about justice, we got to talk about it on the foundation of who God is. We must start with the true standard That true standard is God's righteousness, his holiness. And because of that, God is rightly rightly deserves to judge all things on the foundation of his perfect justice. If the world falls into judgment, it falls into judgment on the basis of the fact that God is holy and righteous. To talk about God's justice in any other way, or talk about justice in any other way, is to fail to have a a competent conversation about justice. Any notion of justice that has permeated the world around us that divorces itself from this essential reality ceases to be justice. Because, number one, he will save and he will preserve his people, the the redeemed people, the elect of Scripture, on what basis? His perfect justice. The reason Jesus had to die was because Justice demanded that you and I die for our sins. So God mediates justice for the sinner who he saves on the basis of his justice, and he will likewise rightfully judge the wicked on the basis of their unrighteousness. So to talk about justice in any sense, if it is divorced from who God is, fails to be justice. God will bring forth a full and eternal justice, and he'll do it in his own timing. God's people, we participate in various ways in our life, in this world, but we must know that the full ramifications of that justice will be met in Jesus in his timing, in his timing alone. And I just want to say one last thing before I move out of this summary of these things. This is why our worship matters. The beginning of true justice is our worship. If you don't worship God rightly, you cannot do justice. It's why God's people worship Sunday after Sunday after Sunday together. It's why God's people read God's word to get to know who he is. It's why God's people collectively gather to study God's word together. It's because at the end of the day, as we do so, we are submitting to who God is. We're adoring him for who he is by the character. We're rightly worshiping him. And only then, only then can things be made right. Okay? Now... That's pulling all those verses together. Again, trust that you can go read those on your own if you wish. So a definition of justice will probably be very helpful for us at this moment based on what we know about God. A sturdy definition because we do not have a lot of sturdy definitions of justice in the world today. Here's the sturdiest definition I could come up with. I've tried to pull together a simple one from multiple sources that I trust, and here's what I have arrived at. Justice is the pursuit to make things right on the foundation of God's perfect righteousness, goodness, and love. Justice is the pursuit to make things right on the foundation of God's perfect righteousness, his perfect love, and his perfect goodness. Now, in this definition, I want to highlight two important aspects of it, and it is this. Number one, justice is the pursuit to make things right. 
So there is a call by being virtue, being made in the image of God, through which you and I must be concerned with justice. It is that pursuit to make things right. And we've already established that God is the standard of all righteousness and therefore defines what is right and wrong. And therefore, justice is the putting things back into the order in which God has created it. Yes? Amen? So God is that standard. And this is where the difference between common understandings, social understandings of social justice departs from biblical justice, does it not? Much of what drives social justice impulses is a specific kind of um, utopian end for all people, right? And it's that kind of vision where we can all live in harmony with one another, within themselves, with each other, with no interference from one another, that somehow we're going to have this iconic society, utopian society, where I can be who I want to be as an individual, yet you and I can live completely in harmony with one another with no one's moral standards imposing themselves on me. Now, that is probably the closest thing to what most of the world thinks social justice is today. It is about you and me figuring out a way to just live together and don't you dare impose a moral standard on me where we live. This, of course, we know is completely at odds with who God is and what he has revealed. Common notions of social justice is a, for the world, I'm speaking from the worldly standpoint, is a picture of equity, meaning rightly balancing things, that is focused on evenness and focused on individualism. We all got to have the same outcome, Right? That's, that's the idea of what social justice is in our modern age. But biblical justice doesn't define things this way if you look at the whole scriptures. It's a picture of equity, a picture of balance that is based on fairness and righteousness that is rooted in the standard of God and His good creation mandate. Does that make sense? You see the difference? That in order for us to get to whatever, whatever equity means, whatever fairness means, it has to start with how God has designed the world. How God has, what God has said is good. What God says is holy. That's the biggest departure between common social norms of justice out there and our biblical forms of justice. We need to rightly understand this issue. Here's my best illustration at it. You guys know, and I know you probably get annoyed of hearing my soccer illustrations, but you're just going to have to deal with another one. There are two kinds of refs that I have seen in the last several years of being a soccer dad. There are refs who feel like it's their job to call an even game, and there are refs who feel like it's their job to call a fair game. I've noticed this over and over again. I saw it in a tournament a couple weeks ago, and this gentleman was a nice man, but he was trying to take a subpar team, and I'm going to be a little bragging here, okay, for a second here, for my little, my little man's team, who was vastly superior to the team that they were playing, and he was trying to make it even so that these guys had a chance to win. These guys did not have a chance to win. Fairness and evenness are not always the same thing. Fairness, I mean, evenness tries to say, well, I'm going to try to do this so this person has a shot to win. It's not your job to make everyone have a shot to win. It's your job to call a fair game with the rules that have been established so that everyone here plays the game that is established for everyone evenly on that, on that basis, not, you know, fairly. I see it all the time. 
And you can see it right away with the way they make calls. You're like, dude, are you, what, what are you doing out there? I've seen it a million times. And listen, I'm a soft-hearted guy. And I probably, if I'm not careful, would probably venture to be like, oh, okay, I just want to see these guys have a shot. They don't have a shot. Like, listen, justice does not have anything to do with evenness, uh, uh, certain outcomes in our life. It has everything to do with what God's standard is, how God has created things. And true justice doesn't always mean everyone gets the same outcome. I know that's hard-hitting because our world is so immersed in that message today, is it not? Many of this faulty view of justice out there is that everyone doesn't experience the same, if everyone doesn't experience the same thing, outcome in the system, then that system must be inherently unjust. Right? You've heard this. This is everywhere. If you're not, I don't know what rock you're living under these days. It's a problem when we talk about race because we're not actually talking about race. We're talking about outcomes. It's built on creating an even playing field rather than a fair playing field. It's about building a, a system that produces the same outcome for all. A very popular author that's out there in that world of kind of equal outcomes, critical race theory, all that kind of stuff. Not that I'm going to do an exhaustive analysis of that this morning. That would take us till this afternoon or tomorrow or next week. But Ibram X. Kendi is a very popular author, very, very popular author. And yeah, I read one of his books or part of it, but a lot of it, as much as I could stomach of it. Um, he goes so far as to say things like, take any given vocational field out there. If 13% of that vocational field is not black, then it's, that vocation is inherently unjust. Now, I hope behind that, and I'm not here to just critique him, and I'm not here to have an exhaustive analysis of that, but my thing is, behind that is, it's not really about race at that point. It's about a certain kind of outcome. And the question is, is if you were to reverse that same ideology, would you still agree with it? And I think most of us would say, no. Another aspect to this whole faulty view of social justice, of course, is this identity politics that we're running into everywhere, right? That we now have to, we have to accommodate to every conceivable possible identity issue that's out there. And we know it. I mean, a new one pops up. Everybody, like who? This week, uh, someone says, I have a right to be a cat. I, I feel like I'm a cat. I'm a cat. We know this. I, I'm not trying to be smug. Please, I'm not, because some of these things are real issues that people are struggling with, and we need to be compassionate and gracious in this. But we live in a world that says justice is pursuing everyone's individual right and unique individual rights within their own subcategory of human existence. And if we do not, if we fail to do so, we have failed justice. It's why modern popularity with neo-Marxist ideals has become such the thing now because that's what it's all about. The problem is, who do you choose? At some point, somebody wins. And there's, at some point, there's a purpose if someone's going to lose. It's just how it always works. I mean, go look at any society that's been built off those ideals and you're fine. There's always a winner and there's always a loser. No matter how utopian they talk about things, it doesn't work. But biblical justice is about fairness on the basis of God's good design. That's our point, right? 
God has created a good world. He's created mankind to be very good, male and female, to flourish. We flourish as we undertake the good task to undertake God's good rule and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, cultivate it. We do all this in the varying, and, 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 and the question you and I must have is when we do all this, every varying identity out there flourishes, not on the basis of their individuality, but on the basis that we're all treated fairly because we're all human. See, God's standard of fairness is, is on the people he created and on the standard in the world and the structure he put together. Not on us pursuing every possible thing for every individual need out there, but that we would live in such a way that that is the place, that's a society that will flourish because it's built on God's standards. Any notion of justice properly understood must begin with God's good creation and the fairness and the equity that God has designed and baked into Scripture. Not on what we have invented about what that looks like. Does that make sense? I know I'm getting into the weeds here, but I feel like the weeds sometimes we just have to get in there and just wrestle around, right? Second thing I want to talk about in this definition before we get into these last two points, because these last two points will be much briefer than this first point, is that not only is justice about pursuing, about making things right, we have to understand that justice is, though, as much as we don't like the word social justice, it is inherently social. Because... Justice is about our relationship with God, and justice is about our relationship with one another. And so, yes, I know, some of us get squeamish when we use the word social justice, and we like to use the word biblical justice as a, as a parody, and those notions are not entirely unfounded, and I'm 100% in agreement with all that, because what is much passes for much of social justice is in the secular realm is not justice at all, as we've already noted, but we must acknowledge that justice is inherently social. It's relational. It, it, the instinct towards right and wrong has everything to do with who says right, what is right and wrong, which is God. And when he says what is right and wrong, that means it affects your relationship with me and my relationship with you. Sin has marred all things and renders our most basic and good instincts mutilated and deformed but there's that impulse that lives in all of us that says there's got to be something that's right and good. And it's amazing, no matter how far away we get from God's standard, there's that impulse that never really goes away, right? It's because it's part of that image bearer thing that, we have, that still haunts us, even if we're not saved. So all that leads to the second point. What does it mean for us then as God's people to live and pursue justice? Let's, again, consider more verses. Genesis 18 and 19, God is about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, and these men are there talking who are going to go down and judge to Abraham. For I have chosen him. They're talking to one another. Should we tell Abraham what's about to go down? And they said, and here's their conversation with one another. For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the people may bring to Abraham what he has, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So there is a call to God's people as a result of our election, as a result of grace that we receive in Jesus, that we would live justly, we live righteously, and therefore God then would, would lavish us with all the blessings of being his promised people. 
Exodus 23, 2 through 3, same, similar idea. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. You shall not bear witness in a law, uh, not bear false witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so that, the, so that you pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Isn't that interesting? Like, poverty in and of itself is not a justice issue. It's the fact of how people are put into poverty that is a justice issue, right? Sometimes it's the way in which we, we collectively get together. And he says, so we don't, we don't necessarily say, oh, because if that person's a poor person, that person deserves more a piece of the pie. That isn't how it works. Not even, not even God's justice. Deuteronomy 16, 19 through 20. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of righteousness. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land of the Lord your God is, your God is giving you. We noted Psalm 37 in the, in the last point about the nature of who God is. It, it continues on in chapter 37, verse 29 through 30, to speak to God's people. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. This is the nature and character of God's people. So much so that the great King David himself was known to one who administered justice and equity to all people in 2 Samuel 8, 15. We put all that together, here's what we find. Justice is an invocation. It's an imperative of our election in Christ. And when I say justice, again, we're talking about living righteously. If you live righteously, you're, you obey the laws and you love your neighbor, you are living righteously and you are living justly. Just living is the fruit of our regeneration. It is. It's a fruit of our conversion. We're not called to perfectionism by any stretch of the imagination. We will fail at this over and over and over again. But we understand that we are to live faithfully and always seek to do so. God's people are called to live justly, both individually and communally. Again, taking that whole scope of 18 and 22 together. It's not just that I'm responsible for me, myself, and I, but I am responsible for the communities in which I live. So I have a responsibility to you, you have a responsibility to me. We live out here, we're citizens of Smyrna, we have a responsibility to Smyrna to live righteously and justly in that place. We have a responsibility to live justly in the United States, into the world. Whatever it looks like, whatever context we find ourselves, this is a, this is a marker of God's people. Individual righteousness and justice and communal. We must make an agreement together as God's people to live in such a way. God's people are not to fall Therefore, then, into the wicked ways and the wicked ideas and the wicked perspectives and pursuits of the unbelieving world. We don't, we don't use their means to resolve problems. It said it right there in one of the verses above. You, you shall not fall into the many, fall in with the many who to do evil, nor shall you bear witness, false witness in a lawsuit or side with the many and pervert justice. In other words, we don't, we don't, we don't use their means for justice. We use God's means. For justice, God's people then, when we do fail this, and we do, we get all trapped up in all the different things that happen in the world. We get all sideways. When we do, we repent. We repent when we fall into the ways of the wicked, the unjust ways of the world. Why? Because God's people are the only people who will inherit a truly just land when Jesus returns. And that truly just land will only happen when Jesus returns. It will be the 
product of our own efforts, not part of our mission. Talk more about that here in a second. So what does this mean for us? Well, this means God's people must pursue justice on the basis of what is truly just and what is truly right. We want fair. We want to live fairly with other people. We want to see a system that treats everyone and gives everyone equal opportunity. Not equal outcomes, equal opportunity. Racism is a justice issue when we judge impartially those based on cultural or ethnic distinctiveness. We want to create a world where every person of every stripe, of every color, every ethnicity has the ability to flourish. Abortion is a justice issue. And yes, it is. In case you are, want to believe, don't want to believe the, the, that what that is, it is a justice issue because it robs the life of an image bearer on the basis of another's needs and circumstances. I can't think of anything more unjust than that. You basically choose this person's life is not valued because it would change the circumstances of someone else. Micah 6.8 tells us, one of the best, shows us one of the best summaries of God's law. You know what it is, right? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. What does it mean to do justice? Acting on God's holy standard in our lives. And where we can impact others around us in that holy standard. Love kindness, mercy. We treat others with dignity. We treat others with fairness. We treat others with kindness, even those with whom we may disagree. I just want to say this is a real major point for me. I, I just don't think there's a place in the Christian's life where we can scoff at our enemies. Oh, we can vehemently disagree with them, and we know God will judge that, but our posture should be one of loving kindness towards them. No matter how far they run, no matter how much they stomp on the wisdom and the goodness and the righteousness of God. We do justice, we love kindness, and preeminently we walk humbly. Why? Because we stand before the Lord as sinners saved by grace. And justice was enacted on our behalf by our Savior Jesus. If you want to get into the justice game, you better stand there as a humble sinner before the cross. And if you do not do that, gently say this, let's shut our mouths just not helpful. God calls for repentance, though, and I bet I'm not alone in this. I found myself in places where I was like, I depended too much on the world's wisdom than on Jesus' wisdom, on God's wisdom, and so when we find ourselves, as I mentioned earlier, we, we, we're guilty of injustice. When we've found ourselves in the wrong space, we must repent and return to the Lord. We know that the times and histories are filled of God's people Good people, good theologians, good pastors who were on the wrong side of God's good order. I can name a few. You probably know who they are. Christians, perhaps, who supported slavery. Jonathan Edwards, someone considered him the chief theologian, chief thinker of the United States experiment. He was on the wrong side of slavery, friends. So was George Whitfield. Many Christians who supported Jim Crow laws, redlining. So in other words, when we talk about individual repentance, we do stand before the Lord for those things. Does that mean that, we're, that, 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 that somehow no, this means that, that uh, um, Jonathan Edwards is not a Christian or George Whitfield? Of course not. Unfortunately, different social structures in different times and different history, historical contexts 
People were blind to these things. But they still must repent. If they were in that context and it was revealed to them. Sometimes social orders are slow to change. But here's the wonderful thing. It's always been good Christians behind them that have seen these structures change. So sometimes you've had good Christians on both sides of the issue. Then Christians who've primarily been responsible for the destruction of chattel slavery, like Wilberforce, Cowper, famous Presbyterian pastor, John Newton. You do, you do know that Amazing Grace was written because of John Newton praising God for him saving him because he was once a wretched slave trader, right? This is what it's about. To be clear, the sins of our forefathers are not our sins, and we're not responsible for those things, and we're not in perpetual penance. I don't believe in that kind of stuff. It's not. It's not there. It's not in Scripture. This is what it means to live in repentance, faith, and restoration where we individually and communally are responsible. God's perfect justice, though, and this is our final point, will come to an end. God's perfect justice will come at some point. The king of justice will come. And this is the point that I really want us to land on here and help rest in because Christians sometimes are obsessed with what is our role to bring this to bear today. And it's, we've got to be clear, our jobs as Christians is not to take dominion of the world. God is able to do that and accomplish it on its own. Heather read from uh, Psalm 48, verses 1 through 8, and I think it said everything we need to say. The Lord is great and highly praised in the city of our God. He is holy... Um, his holy mountain rising splendidly is the joy of the joy of earth. Mount Zion, the summit of Zaphon, and the city of the great king. God is known as a stronghold in the citadels. Look, the kings assemble, and they advance together. Am I reading the right one? I think I'm not even sure. I think I'm actually... Oh, 44. Ah, that's what it was. Like, I am reading the wrong one. Let me just start that over, okay? Here we go. Thank you, Heather. God has heard with our, with our, we have heard with our ears, our ancestors have told us the work you have accomplished in their days, in days long ago. In order to plant them, you displaced the nations by your hand. In order to settle them, you brought disaster on the peoples. For they did not take the land by their by their sword. They, their arm did not bring about victory, but by your right hand, your arm and light of your face, because you have favor, you have, uh, were favorable toward them. You are my king, my God, who ordains victories for Jacob. In other words, the whole point here is that God is with his people. I've said this many times over this series. God is with his people, and he'll be here until Jesus returns. And so whatever system we find ourselves in out here, we preach righteousness, we preach truth, we live the gospel out so that at the end of the day, The gospel's known, and we're ready when Jesus returns. Ezekiel says as much about our hope. Notice over in Ezekiel 22, and I'm about to finish. I know it's a little longer this morning. He talks about, and I emphasize it in my reading, Son of man, say to her, you are a land that has not been cleansed. Verse 24, that has not been received. The rain, the day of indignation, the conspiracy of her prophets. Her prophets have failed. The priests do violence. The priests have failed. The officials, the princes, the kings within here are like wolves. In other words, their 
the lands, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, they have failed to meet the standard of God, then where is our hope? Anyone want to guess? The true prophet, the true king, the true priest, Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, he is coming. Ezekiel, in, in this, in revealing the, the, the failure of these prophets, priests, and kings, is pointing implicitly to another prophet, priest, and king who will come and he will execute justice perfectly when he returns. That is what Matthew 28 is all about. Jesus says, I have all authority, brothers and sisters. By saying he has all authority, he's saying to you, you're in good shape. So all your responsibility is this. Go, so wherever the Lord leads you, make disciples, teach them, i.e. the disciples, to obey and trust him, knowing that he's with you until he returns. That is what Matthew 28 is all about. The mission of of the church is to give witness to the one who is the perfect priest, the perfect prophet, the perfect king, Jesus himself. Jesus is and he will roll. And Jesus, justice is and will roll through our King Jesus and him alone, brothers and sisters. To whatever degree justice fails in our world, and it will continue to fail until Jesus returns, we as his people across this globe put our hope and trust in Jesus and him alone. We love you. God, help us this morning. Just think about what you have heard, what we have heard here. To think about as your people of justice. We are frail people, a broken people. We are time still fiddle and faddle with our old sinful nature. And we seek to serve ourselves, whether to seek and serve you, Jesus, and love you and be your people. But even as we do and we experience your mercy afresh and new every day. God, help us now as we think about and ponder well what it means to be a people who love you on the basis of who you are and to live on the basis of who you are. And prepare ourselves now, Lord, for this table as we minister and love and commune together as your people, that we might be a people who love your righteousness, love your holy standard, and will love, and li- love other people in light of it. We love you. It's in Christ's name.